Well, as we think about John 17 and what you just read this morning, there's a couple of, uh, I want to pose a couple of questions to you this morning. Uh, I guess you might be able to say a couple of tension points that I want you to think through, a couple of categories that I I, I think this text is going to help us think through as we walk through them this morning. Uh, a, a large portion of my message this morning will be directed primarily to believers, those of you that have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. So if you've come to the point in your life where you realize that you are a sinner and that your sins separate you from God and that there was nothing you could do to be brought back into right relationship with God and that by faith alone you turned to Christ and what he did on the cross, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, your sins could be paid for, that there was an atonement, a covering of your sins through faith in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. If that's true of you, that you're a believer and you've come to that point in your life, I want to pose this question to you. Now, what is the goal of your Christian life? I mean, as you go... Today is Sunday, tomorrow will be Monday. When you wake up on Monday morning, what's, what's your goal as a Christian? As you wake up, as you think, what, what does God want me to be about today? And what are the priorities of my Christian life? And then there will be Tuesday, and I live those priorities out again, and we get to, through the week, and you get to the weekend, and then it's Sunday again. So what is the goal of your Christian life? And also thinking about that, Well, how does coming to church play into those goals? To what ends does worshiping together in a church play to the goals of your Christian life? So what I'm talking about, I'm speaking to those of you that understand the truth of justification. So you know that justification, you are made right with God through the gospel, through faith in what Christ has accomplished. Now what I'm asking is in terms of your sanctification, that ongoing process of being made like Christ now what's the goal of that? How does that work? Um, and what role does coming to church play into that process? What role does gathering together like this have? You see, I think some of us at times can fall into a dangerous trap of thinking that, yes, we understand the gospel. We know what it takes to be justified. We know what it takes to turn from our sins and trust in Christ. But now what? Now, how do we grow in Christ? And I think that that though we understand that salvation is by faith and not a part of works, we sometimes think that, well, now the rest of the Christian life is, well, now there's a whole bunch of things I need to be doing. There's a whole bunch of check boxes that I need to, to, to make a list and make sure that I accomplish and, and I need to make sure I do the right things and I need to avoid all of the bad things and that's what the Christian life is about now. And going to church on Sunday is certainly going to help that. That's one of the good things I need to be doing. Going to church will help me avoid the bad things I don't need to be doing. Now, of everything I've said, th- there's nothing wrong in that. That's not a bad way of, uh, nothing I've said is untrue. That's what I'm trying to say. But it might not be the proper emphasis. It might not be where the accent point needs to be. Um, Coming to church on Sunday is not just a part of the thing that you need to do and check off the list. Uh, That's not the primary reason we gather this morning, and it's not primarily what we as Christians now need to give our attention to in growing, that, that yes, we understand the gospel, and now we just need to do, 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 do. Now, there are things that we are supposed to be doing. There are things we're not supposed to be doing. But how does coming to church play into all of that? 
And what is God's goal for us? And as he was about ready to leave this earth and he spent these hours with his disciples, there was a message that he wanted them to catch. And there, there were things he wanted them to understand about what their life was going to entail now and the way that they were supposed to grow and the way that they were supposed to find their oneness in him and their unity with one another, the way they were supposed to abide in him. So as we walk through this text, I think there'll be some answers to some of that question of, well, what's, what's our goal now as Christians? When I wake up tomorrow, what, what am I striving for? And, and when I get to next Sunday, why do we gather again? I think we'll come up with some answers for that question. But the second thing I want you to think about, the second tension point, if you will, specifically as you came to church this morning, why did you come into a Baptist church? Have you ever thought about that? Why did you come to Shawnee Baptist Church? And when I, when I say that word and I focus on that, that uh, adjective, Baptist, um, that, that brings into a mind a whole list of categories of, of, well, there's some theological differences that make us Baptists as opposed to, let's say, Presbyterian or as opposed to uh, uh, an Anglican church or a Catholic church. So why, why are we Baptists? And as you hear me talking about that, what's even your attitude to theology in general? So you know that there are some men that are gathering on Saturday mornings once a month helping me prepare for an ordination council that will be called in September. And we're studying theology together. And we're studying some of the differences and unique things and, and what's the right way to believe and understand the scriptures and why do we have different theological categories and why do we have differences in our churches? So what's your attitude to all of that? Um, do you enjoy theology? Do you despise theology? Do you, do, you, do you look at all the differences and just wonder, is this even necessary? Should we have as many different denominations as we do? Are some of you ready to throw in the towel with theology as if it isn't important? If we didn't have so much theology, we wouldn't have so much division. Some of you might be thinking that. And I don't think we'll, the text isn't going to support that this morning. And so when I ask the question, why did you come into a Baptist church this morning? If some of you have instantly go to stylistic things, well, because I know Baptist churches to like, have a certain stylistic feel, that's really somewhat outside the realm of what I'm talking about this morning. I'm really trying to think about theological things. Some of, some of you, I've talked to you in the last few weeks, and you've told me something similar to you, you're surprised yourself that you're in a Baptist church. You weren't sure you would ever be in a Baptist church or ever come back to a Baptist church. So maybe there's theological reasons for that. Others of you, you, you grew up in a Baptist church. You've always been a Baptist church. You'll be a Baptist till the day you die. So, so why do we have all these differences? And why does Jesus pray that everyone would be one? How do we make sense of this? And, and what's some truth that we can understand? Those are kind of the two, the two things that I want us to walk through in this text. What's, what's our goal in the Christian life? How does coming to church play into that? And then secondly, what do we make of some of the theological differences that we know exist in the church uh, today and for those that worship God and how do we make sense of some of it, specifically when Jesus prays that we would all be one. We're kind of going to deal with them in reverse order. We're going to start with some of the theological differences and then we'll end thinking about what's our, what's our goal in the Christian life. What is our goal as Christians? So that's kind of where we're going Let's look at John chapter 17. Let's start in verse 1, and let's start working our way through this text. John chapter 17, verse 1. And here's what 
Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up to his eyes to heaven and said, I want to stop right there. Your, if your Bible has uh, subtitles, sub headings or subtitles, you'll, you'll notice at the start of chapter 17, it might say something like the high priestly prayer or the prayer of Jesus. For you have been coming along with us since, really since back at chapter 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he's there in the upper room and this is the night before his crucifixion. And when he got through the foot washing and Judas left in chapter 14, he started what we commonly refer to as the farewell discourse. He had many things that he wanted to to explain to his followers. And so with this group of 11, just hours before his arrest and trial, he, he's teaching them things. Look, I'm about to leave and here's some really important truths. And he gets to the end of that. When we get to chapter 18, verse 1, you're going to see where they move into the garden and the arrest happens very shortly after that. And so this is somewhat the culmination of all of that teaching. Uh, as we go through chapter 17, you could look back and see some of the threads that Jesus has been teaching on for these since chapter 14, and you'll see him pray some of these things out. You'll see him actually uh, asking God to, to accomplish these things in the life of uh, his followers and in us. And so this is somewhat of a summary of this teaching. It, it's also in some ways a summary of the entire gospel to this point. It's brought us to this point where shortly after this, Jesus will be arrested and crucified and Jesus has some things that he wants to pray for. He has some things that he wants to see brought about. And so uh, all the way to the end of the chapter, this is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. And you'll see him move through the prayer in about three segments. Um, from verse 1 through verse 5, he prays for himself. Then from verse 6 to verse 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, those 11 there that he would be with, whether he's still in the upper room or if he's traveling on the way to the garden. And he, he has those 11 in mind. And then he prays in verse 20 through the end of the chapter for us, for the believers who would believe after, through the ministry of the disciples. So at his point in life, he's praying for the future believers. You could say he's praying for the church. And so he moves through this prayer in three segments, and because of the, the sake of time and where we're going this morning, I'm just going to summarize the first two parts where he prays for himself. And then he prays for his disciples. And we're actually going to focus from verse 20 to verse 26 towards the end of the chapter. So come back to verse 1. Here's where Jesus prays for himself. He says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So throughout the gospel, you've heard Jesus say things like, uh, if we had studied more in depth the first 10 chapters, the hour has not yet come. My hour, it's not time. The hour through John's gospel was specifically referencing this point in time of his death, his burial, his resurrection, resurrection, the, the point of time for which he came. And Jesus realizes this is it. This is the hour. You heard him say something very similar just a few chapters earlier. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Make, make me known so that I can make you known. Jesus wants to be glorified so that the Father would be glorified, so that the Father would be known. And you look at verse 5, look at verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is praying for the Father through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and return to the Father's side that he would again be returned to glory, that he would uh, be made, that his glory would be shown so that people would see who the Father is. 
So this is all going to be accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So what he's praying for in these verses came true. It happened. He has been glorified. He has returned to the Father. That's why John, in his prologue to the Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when John writes chapter 1, verse 14, he's years removed from the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And he says, We've seen His glory. We beheld it. He was here among us. And Jesus prayed that that would happen. That he would be glorified so that people would see who the Father is. And it happens. So he prays for himself, praying that, that people would see who he is so that he could point to the Father. And he prays that his glory would be known. Secondly then, starting in verse 6 through verse 19, he prays for his immediate followers. There's several things that he prays for. He, he, he focuses on the fact that the instruction that the Father gave him, he passed these things on to his followers. He prays that they would be one in verse 11. He prays for their unity. And then you can kind of see a, a bit of a summary of what he prays for. We're going to go to verse... 15, and you'll see that he prays that, that the Father would keep the disciples or protect them, I guess is another way you could say that, that, that the Father would guard them, and he prays for their sanctification, that they would grow in their Christ-likeness. And so this is what he prays in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The big distinction there. Jesus was leaving, and he was leaving them in a very dangerous spot. The opposition that had been focused on him was about to be focused on his disciples. And these are ones that believed in him. And yet, Jesus is not praying that God would just take them out of the world and remove them from danger. He's saying, guard them, protect them, keep them, because just as you've sent me into the world, now I'm going to send them with a message. Look what he says in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth Jesus heart was with these 11 he says father keep them just like you've sent me now I'm sending them with a mission and a task and a message keep them sanctify them I'm sending them into the world and so he prays for those 11 disciples. Now, for you and I, this is then going to be the heart of our message when we look in at verse 20. From verse 20 through the end of the chapter, and here's what Jesus, there's another kind of turn in his prayer, and he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning those 11 disciples, his, his current 11 disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus not only prays for the 11 disciples, but he prays for a group of people who are going to come to faith in Christ, who are going to believe in him through the word of those 11. So think about this. Jesus is praying for all who would come to faith in Christ through the ministry of those disciples. So Jesus is assuming that there would be a, a success or there would be fruit to the mission and message of those apostles. That when Jesus leaves, when Jesus is crucified, it's not as if his plans have fallen apart. It's not as if things have come to a crashing end. No. 
the hour came not when Jesus says the hour has come he's not resigning himself in the sense of saying well this is it there's no way out the hour has come I guess we can't do anything about it he's saying father the hour that you appointed me to is here and glorify me this is why you sent me and there's a group that I'm sending into the world and they're gonna to continue to proclaim the word about me so glorify me so that they would see your glory and I'm praying for those who when they bring that word they're gonna believe in me and so Jesus prays for all future believers he prays for all future followers of Christ that as he leaves and this message and this group of followers multiplies, he prays for them. So that means, brothers and sisters, those of you that have trusted in Christ for salvation, Jesus prayed for you in John 17. That's an encouraging thought to know that we were on the mind and the heart of Christ hours before his crucifixion. that he prayed for us and he had specific things that he wanted and, 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 and there was this word that would go forth about there was a word that would go forth from those disciples and it would cause many to believe and so this is what he prays verse 20 I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that, that we would be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. This was a theme that Jesus tried to make very important throughout this gospel, and especially through the farewell discourse, that, that Jesus and the Father are united, and now he's saying his followers need to be one. And that this is part of how the world would know and believe who he is. So come back up to verse 11, because he's repeating what he prayed for his disciples. So verse 11, he's praying just for those 11, his immediate followers, and in the middle of that verse he says Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one he, he wants them to be united in the same way that Jesus and the Father are united so you think about that relational oneness that Jesus has with the Father and throughout these chapters he's been saying the Father is in me and I am in the Father and my words come from him and now he's saying in the same in that same way we need to be one and in him and one with one another and that this is part of how the world will believe that that God had sent Jesus is what he says in verse 21 so that the world may believe that you have sent me verse 22 the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me so Jesus is saying that, that the oneness of his followers that come after this will help the world see that God loves, that the Father loves the Son and also loves us. 
That that same love is together and that that unity and oneness. And so he prays for our protection, for our keeping, for our oneness, that that, that would be a testimony to the world around us. So where does that oneness come from? especially in light of the fact that we see so much division in the church today. And it would be tempting to think, well, we just all need to get along. All Christians everywhere that, that bear the label of Christian, if, if you say you follow Jesus, let's be one. Why so much division? Why, why can't we just be one? He prayed that we would be one. And, and he even said, this is how the world is going to know you. So, so we've got, a, 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 out of evangelistic importance, this is of utmost importance. We need to be one. Therefore, let's not worry about theology and doctrine. Let's all drop our denominational tags. And we'll just be the one church. We'll just all get along in one big happy family. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, I don't know that that, that would work, number one. I know it wouldn't work. Number two, I know it's not what Jesus is advocating for. He, he is specifically speaking about a specific kind of oneness, that there would be oneness among believers just as there is oneness between Jesus and the Father. So you need to come back up to verse 6 where he was praying for his 11 disciples and listen to where this oneness, this unity comes from. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given to me, and they have kept your word. Now, we need to look at verse 8 as well. Now they come, verse 7, now they come that everything that you have, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Here's how Jesus made himself known. He made himself known and he gave his word to his disciples. And he's saying, they believed. They've kept the word that you have given me. And in verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So, so the truth of who Jesus is is tied to the truth of who he is. It's tied to the doctrinal truth of who Jesus is, of who the Father is, and these truths are extremely important. They are theological truths of who Jesus is, of who God is. That's why we study the scriptures to understand who is Jesus, what is the word that he has given us about himself, what is the word that he has given us about the Father, because that's where unity is going to come from. We have to have truth to unite around. Unity and true oneness in an understanding of who Jesus is is necessarily theological. We are, it's easy for us to think that doctrine and theology divides, but that's not the case that we find in Scripture. Theology and doctrine is the only thing we can unite around. And that's why Jesus says that, that there's these disciples who received the word, they understood who he was, they understood who the Father was, they kept the word, and now he's sending them out with that message. He's sending them to teach others. And so he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Their word is the truth of who Jesus is, the theological truth of Jesus Christ, and the theological truth of the gospel, and the theological truth of who the Father was. Was, and that is what is going to make them one. 
And so everyone who believes the truths of who Jesus Christ is and the true truth of the gospel, and as I earlier said, my message this morning is primarily for believers. If that's you, someone who has placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are one in the universal sense of all who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. Now, with that said, we kind of have to talk then about the elephant in the room. Why so many different churches? I mean, if we're all one, why has there been so much separation? Why so much disagreement about doctrine? And is there any way to still have differing doctrinal beliefs, differing theological beliefs, and, hold, and be able to uh, fulfill or complete this prayer where Jesus is praying and he's asking for them all to be one? So let's think through that just a little bit. Let's, where did some of these splits come from? Why are you in Shawnee Baptist Church this morning? Okay, So let's go all the way back to uh, the time of Christ. In order to talk about this this morning, let me just give a disqualifier, a, cl a disclaimer. I need to use broad categories. There'll be a little bit of broad stroking here, so don't press things into the details that I'm not intending. Uh, but, but we kind of need to be able to go through church history quickly. I, I want to use some denominational tags that, that in a broad stroke sense I'm trying to be truthful with, but understand it might not be true in every single experiential scenario that you know of, because you might be able to say, well, what about, you know, I had a neighbor who, and I'm not saying it's true in every single scenario, but we need to think through this a little bit. So, Jesus, uh, um, after the resurrection, after the ascension, you see the church starting in Acts, and in that time there was one church. Also, the other thing I would say, everything I'm talking about this morning is in those who would broadly tag themselves as Christian, the Christian church. I'm not talking about other faiths and other gods, and if you start getting into other religions, I'm talking about everyone that would broadly tag themselves as Christian. So you only have one church, and the church grows, the church multiplies. By the time you get out of the New Testament, the church is still growing, and you go through early church history, and you will often... Uh, you, if you study church history in some of the early church creeds, you will hear the word, uh, hear the church described as the church Catholic, where the, where the word Catholic is used as a modifier for the, the universal church is another way that that would be said, because at that time there was only one church. It was the church Catholic, the church universal. So don't confuse that with the Roman Catholic church that we're much more familiar with today, but that's why those creeds referred to the one true Catholic church, the universal church. So church history goes and continues, and eventually uh, there's a great schism between East and West between the one church Catholic, okay, not Roman Catholic, but the one church, and then the Eastern Orthodox churches. So the East and the West split in 1054 uh, AD, and, and you see these two different um, schisms, I guess you could say, in, in, in church history. And, and so the Catholic church continues, or the, the, in that sense, as the years, centuries go by, it's getting closer to the Roman Catholic church. But as we talked about the uh, Reformation and the anniversary of some of those events 500 years ago, that's where you begin to then see that Martin Luther, John Calvin, some of these reformers came along and they said, wait a minute, what we understand in the truths of justification isn't matching what we see in Scripture doesn't match what the church, the church Catholic, is proposing today. And so then you see a break between Protestants and what then becomes Roman Catholicism. And so you have the Catholic Church that you and I are more familiar with today that continues through the centuries. And then you would also have 
Out of that split, you've got Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, you've got Methodists, Anglicans. You could keep going and the list would be very long, but all of that then developed from the events of the Protestant Reformation. And so how then do we understand why are there so many differences? Why are there so many splits? Why do we have so many different doctrinal things? If you were to look at the statement of faith for Shawnee Baptist Church, there's 16 articles of faith for our church. And as you think through all of them, what is it that makes us a Baptist church? What is it that makes us a Christian church? Are all 16 of those equally important? That's kind of the question that we need to turn to now. When you understand, okay, why are there so many differences in the churches? One of the things that we need to recognize and understand is there are different ideas in theology that have a bigger impact on the truthfulness of the faith and whether or not we remain one in Christ. So I've heard Al Mohler talk about this and he talks about the idea of doing triage. We need to do theological triage. So those of you in the medical field, especially if you've worked in an emergency room, you would be familiar with the idea of triage. It comes from a French word which means to sort. And so in an emergency room, somebody needs to quickly be able to do triage and sort things out. Okay, this is a scraped knee. It's not quite as important as a gunshot wound to the chest. And so without somebody doing triage and sorting these things out, these two issues, both of which are important, would get treated with the same level of importance. And so someone has to be able to sort that out. And so it's helpful to think of the things that we believe and whether you look at the 16 articles of faith in our church or whether you look at the articles of faith in other churches and you look through these things in all theology and doctrine, are all of them first level importance? Are all of them of the highest order of importance? And I don't think that you could say that all of them are. That's not to say that some of them are unimportant. Don't, that's not what I'm saying this morning, but some of them would be first level order of importance. So you look at things like the Trinity, the understanding that God is three in one. You look at things like the deity of Christ. You look at things like the, the sufficiency of Scripture, the virgin birth. You look at the gospel, certainly the teaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what the reformers fought over. That's what the reformers were willing to say, wait a minute, this is of first order importance. Because we've lost justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and as you think through some of these things that were at stake in the Reformation, they were willing to say, wait a minute, the gospel is at stake. These things are of first order importance. If we lose these things, we've lost the gospel. We're no longer one. Or if we continue with these things, we, it will put us on a path where the gospel will be at stake. So this is where some of the divides come in place throughout Christian history. As you look at the East and the West, the great schism there, as you look at the Catholic Church and you realize, okay, there's things that the Catholic Church teaches the Roman Catholic Church, of which we would say are our first importance, of which the gospel itself is at stake. Now, some of you may have heard me say that Roman Catholics are not Christians. That's not what I just said. Let me clarify what I'm saying. There would be those who are a part of the visible Roman Catholic Church who, through their own understanding of the Scriptures, have come to salvation through a correct understanding of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. And they would believe the same gospel that you and I do, but for whatever reason, they haven't separated from the Roman Catholic Church or left the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm saying 
is that according to the doctrine that the church itself teaches, if you were to look up Roman Catholic theology, you would see that on these matters of first order importance, especially as it relates to the true gospel, there's a divide. There's, uh, there's, there's, um, the gospel is compromised. And so someone who normally and ordinarily follows the teaching of the, of the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't in that sense come to an under, a, salvi, a, a saving understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so you see some of the splits that way. Then there's a second level that you would see, things that we might call a, a, a secondary tier of secondary order of importance. And this is where some of uh, those within Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and others, and you would say, well, we are united on first order importance things, but not secondary importance things. So this would be things like church polity, the way a church is organized. As you look at things like uh, elders and bishops and presbyteries and the way a church functions that way. As you look at things like mode of baptism. So whereas our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would believe in infant sprinkling and we in the Baptist church would say no, mode of baptism is important and it's got to be baptism by immersion. And so you would look at these things and you would say, well, we are united on first tier importance. We're one like Jesus says in this passage because we understand the gospel, we understand who Jesus is, we understand the truth of scripture and we're united in that sense but on these things of secondary importance it wouldn't be wise for us to partner together and form churches because there's, there's too much disagreement on some of these secondary matters. Uh, so we probably shouldn't plant churches together because we don't agree on the mode of baptism and some of these other things. That doesn't mean that there isn't fellowship. That doesn't mean that we don't need to recognize that we have a unity and a oneness. These would be important things to realize. There's also, in this, you need to recognize and understand that there would also be, within each of these categories, uh, so let's just take our Baptist denomination, for instance, there would be a broad spectrum within Baptists. Those on the conservative end of the spectrum who truly take God at his word and believe in the deity of Christ and those who believe in the sufficiency of scriptures and those who believe on all those first order things that I was just saying. But there are those within Baptist circles as you go down to moderate and even liberal who deny some of the first order doctrines of importance. And that causes us to be in a unique place where we would recognize and realize though, though we over here are united on these first order things, we might feel a closer affinity, a closer like-mindedness with a, with a Presbyterian or an Anglican who, who is united on these items of first order importance. Doesn't mean we're going to plant churches together. But there is a unity, a oneness because we're united on the first order of importance things. And some who hold the label of Baptist have denied the order of first importance things. And so we need to be very careful and mindful and discerning. You know what? Theology is important because without it, we have nothing to unite around. And yet we realize that, that there are places where we need to realize that, that, that God allows for... Uh, where we recognize there are brothers and sisters who are trying to be faithful to Scripture and the freedom of conscience would necessitate, you know what, we probably shouldn't partner in the same church 
But we are united in one, and so perhaps we would have different churches. And then perhaps there would also be a whole other order of, you might call them tertiary or third-level things, where you look at and realize, you know what, these are important. We need to form conclusions on them. But brothers and sisters can even be a part of the same church and the same fellowship and sit together around the same table, and there's, there's no thing that would preclude the ability to be members in the same church. And so we've got to recognize and realize, well, there's different orders. So... There is a way that dividing over theology and denominations and, and separating against one another can be very harmful to the John 17 unity that Jesus prays for. That can be done. And yet, if we recognize with a humility and a Christ-likeness and a realizing what is it, the truth of who Jesus is, that he says that he has passed on in verse 6 and verse 8 and the truth of the Father and these items of first order importance, we need to recognize and realize that, that this is what makes us one. And so we need to recognize that unity where it's appropriate, fellowship where it's appropriate. doesn't mean we'll be able to plant churches together, but there is a oneness that we recognize and we appreciate and we give thanks to God for. And it's part of what will help the world know that we have been sent from God. And then secondly, let's think about this idea then. So now what's, what's our goal as Christians? Look at verse 24. Father, here's what Jesus prays. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You look at verse 24 and what Jesus prays, and he, his desire... His desire is that you and I, that those believers who would believe in his name would be where he is, to see his glory, that we would be with him. That Certainly, part of what is in Jesus' mind is that final, ultimate day where we have face-to-face -face communion and we dwell with Christ. And so that's certainly part of what is in his mind. But I don't think it's only that. As you look at verse 25 and 26, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. There's a work that has been started through this mis mis ministry and message of the original disciples and those that have passed on this message. And God is making himself known, and he's going to continue to make himself known. Part of that is through the ministry of the Spirit that Kevin covered last week. And, and God wants this ministry to continue so that we would know who he is so that we would understand his glory. Look back at verse 3. Look back at verse 3 when Jesus prays that he would be glorified, and then he says in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Th this is what eternal life is, that, that we would know God that we would experience him, that he, we would have his love in us, that we would abide in him, that he would abide in us, that we would have the true knowledge of who God is. What is your goal as you wake up tomorrow? It's to know who God is. 
You need to know him better than you do. I need to know him better than I do. I need to know who he has made me to be. Someday that will be face to face, but it's a work that he has started for us now. And, and it will happen as we abide together, as we are one together, as we pursue the truths of who he is as God, and we want to see his glory. And Jesus wants to see who he is. Jesus wants us to experience the true knowledge of who he is. And this is similar to the prayer that Paul picks up up then in Ephesians chapter 3 and I'd like you to see it in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul prays for the church so he says in verse 14 for this reason I bow my knees before the father and then he comes to verse 17 he's praying for the church and he says so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays that the believers there would, would have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He wants them to know God, to know Jesus, to know and understand his love. And brothers and sisters, that's what you and I need. We need to know God better than we do. And we won't know him apart from his word that has revealed him. We won't know him apart from deep theological truths. We can't set these things aside and somehow assume that we will get to unity. We can't assume that just because we have the right denominational label on our sign that somehow we, we speak the right truth. Within all of those denominations that I mentioned, you, you will find some on the moderate and liberal perspective that you would recognize there's, there's no affinity here. There's no unity. We don't agree on first order importance things of who Christ is. And we need to know him. We need to see his glory. We need to comprehend the full breadth and the height and the width of who he is. And that is what God has designed the church to do and be. That's why we come together. When you come to church next Sunday, it's not just to check off a box that says, this will help me, God will be pleased with me. It's because the church, as God has designed it, is a community of people who bind themselves together and saying, yes, that's the truth of who Jesus is. I want to know him. I want to pursue him. I want to learn about him. I want to bind arms with you and partner together so that we can pursue Christ, so that we can know who he is, so that we can see his glory. Someday it will be complete. Right now, we're beginning to know him. We're pushing each other towards him. We're searching diligently in the truths of scripture about who he is. One of the things Kevin and I have been talking about in his role is that I would love to see him work with the elders to develop uh, like a core curriculum of classes that this is what it means to be, uh, uh, here's some of the core doctrines of what we believe as a church to give us uh, somewhat of a foundation that yeah, we, we all together unite and here's some of the deep truths that we can be pressed into not because we have a corner on the market and we're the only ones who are right but because that's where unity comes from, is theological truth of who Jesus is, who he's created us to be. And we need to search it out deeply. 
That's what it means to be a part of a church. Not just a place where you enjoy the music and the people and these kinds of things, though those are not unimportant. We're bound together by the truth of who Jesus is, and that's how we will see his glory as a people. And we work on it today, day by day, until we see him face to face, until the truth of Revelation. I'm going to read some verses for you out of the book of Revelation until we actually get to this point and we see him face to face. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I, beho- and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And then you come down to verse 22 of the same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then you come to chapter 22 and you go to verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be put in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, one day we will see God face to face, and we will see the the, uh, answer to this prayer that Jesus prayed, that we see his glory. Until then, he's designed this body of believers and the church universal, the true church, those who truly understand the gospel and who Christ is, to display that oneness, to pursue Christ. And so come together as a church next week as we gather. You're not coming to go to church. You are the church. We're pursuing God together. We're pursuing His glory together. Gathering is one of the things He wants us to do. And so come together to encourage one another, to pursue Christ, to learn about Him not to be able to check off the box that I came to church this week because that, that's not now what the Christian life is about. Now the Christian life is about learning who God is, becoming like him, staying united in him. May, may that be true for us as a church and what God accomplishes for us. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for who you are as God. We're thankful for what you did in the person of Jesus Christ and the salvation that you brought through your son. Lord, we we know that there is great oneness between the Father and the Son. We know that you desire that same oneness for us as believers, both with you and with one another. Father, help us to think deeply about the truth of who you are so that we we know and understand who we're united with, so that we know and understand what it means to be a part of this particular church in this location and, and the truths that we believe about you. Help us to make primary things primary, not compromise on those. Help us to be careful about trying to make things primary that ought not to be. Help us to pursue you to want to see your glory, to to want to see who you are as God, to want to know you better. I pray that for our people tomorrow when we wake up and go through this week, that it would be on our minds and hearts that we're not just trying to do more for you, 
We're trying to know you more. And in that, there will be things you want us to accomplish. But may knowing you be our primary goal. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.